Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I am your host, Brett King. This week, we have the return of our good friends and uh, uh, sponsors and supporters, FIS. Um, We're going to get into their global innovation report. It's got some really interesting stuff we're going to cover off embedded finance, ESG, and uh, uh, decentralized finance or DeFi, um, as it is known, um, and jump into more of the innovation stuff. but be, before we do that, you know, uh, one of the things that's, uh, that is at the foundation of these elements is the speed of innovation that's affecting the industry. And as we've seen in the last few weeks with the disruption around uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse um, and, uh, and so forth, you know, I think that a large portion of what we're seeing happening in the space right now is innovation related. The adaptability, the ability to run uh, newer credit risk models based on data science and AI, behavioral models, things like that. Um, And increasingly, we are going to see a a struggle as banks try to become more ESG compliant and things like that. This requires some fairly significant innovation in terms of the tech stack as well. So um, I think it's a good topic for us to dive into today. I'll introduce our two guests that are joining us. We have Melissa Cullen. She's the Global Head of Strategy, Product, and Commercialization at FIS Banking Solutions. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Absolutely. And also joining us is Tony Warren. He's the Global Head of Strategy and Solutions Management at FIS Capital Market Solutions. Tony, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you very much, Brent. And again, very happy to be here. Fantastic. So I think let's dive into uh, um, this topic of embedded finance, first of all, and um, uh, maybe as a definition uh, of this, um, maybe, Melissa, how, how would you define embedded finance? And particularly, feel free to give it an FIS slant. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I think when we talk embedded finance, everyone has a general concept, but the specifics can sometimes um, be hard to pin down. Really, the way I think about it as we're looking at solutions um, at FIS is it's simply an extension of the consumer experiences we've grown accustomed to, right, in our personal lives. So you think about Um, the immediacy, the convenience that we expect um, in basically everything we do. Now it's taking that convenience and really bringing it to all sorts of financial transactions. So whether that's um, showing up to buy a computer or deciding where I'm going to invest next, it's being able to offer financial services at the point of need, um, and those are no longer just coming through your traditional financial services providers. So it's opened up the door to a lot of fintechs or neobanks um, to enter the game as well. 
No, I, I think, um, you know, if, if we look at what banks do when we're talking about, you know, traditional delivery of financial services and, and distribution, it's very much been a pull model where you go and ask the bank for something and then we see if you qualify, or as I used to call it, the lucky to be a, a, a customer scenario, right? If you're not too risky, maybe yeah. we'll let you have uh, have a banking product, right? Um, so that's the old model, but technology has shifted that. As you've said, it's all about now low friction, low latency, real-time delivery of financial services. Um, and in, in doing so, the really interesting piece of this is to, de- to design financial services products for that real-time environment where you don't have an application form, you don't need a signature, you don't do any of those traditional distribution mechanics, the traditional products you would have distributed through the branch using those old methodologies aren't a clean fit to the sort of technology layer. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think there's organizational structure changes here. I think there's metrics changes. But um, how do you think banks and financial services firms are responding to customer behavioral change on on this side of the, the equation? I'm, I'm, I'm going to, well, Melissa needs to answer because she runs banking, but I'll also just uh, give her my two cents here as well, which is, um, you know, it, it is all about, in my mind, this is all about the advancement of technology. It's the advancement of the availability of data and now the, um, the introduction of more sophisticated artificial intelligence and uh, algorithms that can be at the point of entry. So there's just so much instant I think, um, decision trees that can occur behind the scenes, uh, which really do um, lay the foundations now to, to really do whatever you want at point of entry. But Melissa, as I said, I don't want to sell your thunder because you really are the banking guru. But but I think, you know, it does have this big techno- advanced technology play uh, to it as well. Right. Well, none of this would be able to be brought forth if it wasn't for the fact that we can now offer technology, not in, you know, the monolithic stacks that it used to be, but really more componentized. And the data point is really what it all comes down to. Banks know that they're not, you know, the whole Brett um, analysis of hey, we're going to tell you if you qualify, embedded finance, and especially some of what I think we're going to see really soon um, with chat GBT, is turning that on its head. It's going to be, hey, am I willing to do business with you? And now we're finally offering that um, out to the market. So... No, I think that's a, a important element. Um, you know, if, if you look at the componentization you know uh, that you you talk about and and of course that flows on to design these days with cloud-based services kubernetes you know containerization and stuff that you know we're, we're doing that from a technology perspective but um you know just if you you start taking things like identity verification processes and the ability to capture someone's identity in real time you know for opening a bank account 
Um, I'd argue that a lot of that innovation was driven by fintechs pushing for that. You know, um, my experience is, you know, working with the likes of HSBC and other global brands at the time of the the dot com boom, that there wasn't, um, you know, a lot of pressure from incumbent banks to have that that type of that type of technology um but you know from an FIS perspective you guys have obviously had to build a lot of these sort of component capabilities to extend on FIS's overall you know platform capabilities so you know it's it's interesting that you know i think from a, a pure banking industry perspective you know, we think a lot more of technology, not just as a core system anymore, but sort of a range of, of, of technologies. Uh, um, you know, so from a strategic perspective, you, know, you hear fintechs talk about their tech stack, whereas banks still talk about their core systems. How do you think that's sort of coming together? Is embedded finance the, the mechanism to create a sort of more tech stack view of the world? My perspective, I think it's just one of the use cases. It's certainly going to help drive it faster. Um, but I've always been a proponent of, hey, in the very near future, we're not going to buy, you know, our clients are not going to come to providers like FIS to buy a system. They're going to come to buy capabilities to enable a specific use case of how they need to interact with their own clients. Um, luckily, we started the journey before we actually knew where it would end up. So um, through our Code Connect library, right, that's really where all of our APIs are offered out to the market, whether it's a bank or to a fintech um, that we might service. There's over a thousand APIs in there now, billions of transactions each year. And I think that's just going to continue to grow because that is going to be the new buying model. That we end up with at the end of this decade. Yeah, yeah, and, no, I, and I, I think I think it will shift. I think it will shift more to platform as well. Um, to Melissa's point, rather than rather than kind of uh, individual products. Um, so even for the consumer, at the end of the day, um, it's all about information being available online, real time, mobile, you know, app based. Um, and 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 right now, you know, you're still going to different suppliers to do different things within the uh, the financial services industry. So typically, you know, a bank is is still perhaps separate to your investment account and savings accounts, etc. So I think it's going to shift quite quickly now into savings products, retirement products, current accounts, saving account. Just the whole thing will really come together. Um, to allow a, a completely uh, frictionless environment for the consumer. Well, so when you talk about platformification of banking, you know we're really talking about quite a different ecosystem that's emerging mm-hmm. for for delivery of financial services. We we have technology players that are broadly involved in in fintech, um, you know, or in. A delivery of banking type services today. You know, Apple comes to mind. Of course, if you're in China, it's Alipay and Tencent, WeChat Pay as examples. Um, and then, of course, you have specialized fintechs. You know, fintechs have created their own brand. Uh, you know, you've got players like Stripe and others who are, um, you know, becoming sort of part of infrastructure, um, you know, at least for SMEs. But you've also got fintechs that work, you know, consistently with banks now, providing banking as a service platforms. You know, you've got fintechs that service other fintechs. So so the it seems like the lines are blurring between 
sort of technology delivery and and finance. I mean, even the core bank account today, more people globally use a mobile wallet than they do a debit card for their banking. Yeah. So that that in itself is is a proof point. What you know, how are those lines blurring, Melissa? Um, I think when you see, like, when we asked for in the global innovation report, how embedded finance is really going to change the dynamics, we asked both fintechs and traditional financial services providers. You know, the answer was unanimous um, that it certainly came down to new distribution mechanisms. So you talk about um, Apple, right? And how do I enable? Um, my, you know, transactions, my financial service procurement through what could be, you know, Apple Glass uh, when the newest versions are released, call it in the next year to two, um, or whether that's, hey, simply walking into a store today with your mobile device um, and being able to transact without the traditional cards, right? So, it all comes down to data availability and making that available. Fintechs have done a phenomenal job at mining that data quickly for client acquisition. What banks have, though, is so much more data. So if they can evolve their own analytics to really offer up, right, build on the foundation that they've had, um, they'll be in a strong position to continue to compete. But isn't that ability to leverage the data, isn't that also based on sort of like organizational strategies? Because so much of that data is siloed. You know, that's the one of the thing, one of the benefits fintechs have is they don't have those traditional silos in terms of the view of the data. You know, they don't even have a traditional org chart in in terms of the product teams. You know, you don't have a savings team and a mortgage team and a um, you know and a credit card team in a fintech. You know, you just have the you know the the data team and the technology delivery team. You know, so um, how do we break that sort of organizational sort of process and strategy, you know, hurdle, I guess? I'll start and then, Tony, I'm going to kick it to you. I okay. think the window is really narrow um, for financial institutions to do this and to get it right. So start breaking down those silos because we are very rapidly approaching a period of time where it'll go back, right? I think Gartner did a report um, recently that said, I don't know, 20, before the end of this decade, call it, um, customers were all, all have access to and own and control their own data and enable what banks or fintechs can use in order to offer them services. So, right, being able to drive insights and leverage it has to happen quickly. Tony, I know you've done a lot of work on the um, cap market side of bringing together data uh, for clients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, what you just said there, um, I think the industry at large, to be honest, it's not even it's not even within like a fintech company versus financial services company. I, th I think I think it's still it's still spread between different entities across the the sort of the value chain, if you will, from a financial services perspective. Um, you know, I think I think the banks um, the banks still play 
more holistically, but now you you know you have specialist um, areas as well as you get deeper into um, the capital markets industry, wealth and retirement, etc. But I I think the shift will be to Melissa's point. Um, you will start to get through technology. You're going to get a one sh- a one shop stop, and it, it's everything from payments to be able to just move your money. Um, and uh, and payroll is another interesting one, actually. How it will intersect with your your own revenue coming in on on a personal point of view, um, and then you've got things like tax, you've got regulations, etc., around um, the financial controls as you start to get into into the investment as well as the the payments world. So I think there's mm. there's a lot of stuff going on, um, and it is still relatively immature, which I think is the interesting thing. But data is changing so fast now. Access to data, the frictionless movement of data, the digital delivery, the AI algorithms that you can put behind the scenes that we're going to see a rapid evolution uh, over the next two or three years, I think. Well, it also, I think, changes the mix of, you know, um, the the in terms of how we measure excellence in the space you know if you look at um, the likes of WeBank and NewBank you know two big challenger banks they've uh, consistently demonstrated uh, lower um, NPL ratios lower credit risk than mm-hmm. um, you know their equivalents and one of the arguments traditional banks had for saying why fintechs weren't a threat you know, at least, uh, you know, 10 years ago was they'll never be able to do credit risk management as good as the banks will. And and the reality is that's a technology problem. That's right. You know? Yeah. So this sort of brings in the the, the life of AI here. Um, you know, obviously everyone's talking about a, a GPT right now. We just saw GPT-4 released last month um, and, you know, chat GPT before that. You know, GPT-4 in terms of what the improvement we saw on that from GPT-3.5, which was the the chat GPT tech, significant um, advances in just the space of four or five months. You've got um, uh, mid-journey version five out now with some incredible, um, you know, generative capabilities in terms of um, images. Uh, you know, like generating photorealistic images of, of people, um, you know, that are indistinguishable from a real photo. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty impressive tech. But we, you know, we are yet to really see generative AI impact the banking space. In terms of the report, where does it indicate the 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 more medium term or near term implications of generative AI are for the financial services space? I'll take this one um, to start. So (laughs) when we look at some of the findings from the innovation report, right, it was throughout how are, however, this is what I think is interesting. It was a very internal um, look, whether we were talking to, um, you know, our corporate clients or whether we were talking to our financial uh, clients. How are they going to use it to improve their offerings out to the market? What has completely um, not been exposed and I think is very important for the next iteration of this report will be, you know, what's really going to tip the scales when clients start using it to make those evaluations, to decide, right, where are you investing? How are you in That's right. That's right. 
Um, so I think that is where we will see a real ramp and a need to respond. I think um, you, you, you're right, uh, Melissa. So once you've got a tool where you can ask simple questions, and even that's going to turn into advice. I mean, think about it. It's going to turn into advice. Right, right. Because by the nature of it, it's generating a response to a question or a query based on the whole of the information that's out there in, in, in cyberspace. So then coming back with a very logical answer through algorithms. And I think it will it will really it will really change the way society behaves as well. I mean, well, I can I can go on about this a lot because I, I think there are some pitfalls. I mean, you think about education yeah. to youngsters. You know, what why go and trawl through books where you can just ask this thing and it will produce your, it will produce your thesis. So right. <laughs> education is going to have to change. Yeah. It's going to have to adapt. Education will have to change because <laughs> as a mom to an eight and ten year old, I can tell you. I mean, they're already using it, right? Yeah. Hey, exactly. You don't know the exactly. answer, mom or dad? Let me ask Alexa. She'll know it. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, if you look at the generative AI stuff, it's obviously um, trawling massive amounts of data. Now, when yeah. it comes to something like the financial advisory space, um, you know, we've got this, but it's also applies in the legal field, the accounting field, you know, it's medical field. We, we have a situation where these algorithms will be able to um, consolidate all of this advice that's been, you know, the, right. or the expertise that's been built up over decades and synthesize right. it down into just the, the perfect uh, kernel of information. Um, and, and the reason we go to lawyers and doctors and, um, you know, tax experts is because they know more about this than we Correct. do. But what happens Correct. when these generative AI algorithms produce better advice than humans? That's right. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> well, it's a slippery slope, but you know, I mean, it, it, what what do you think the impact of it is going to be on the the advisory space over the next ten years, Tony? It will it, it it will be wholesale disruption of the advisory space. It has to be so. It has to be embraced, and it has to be a tool that the advisory space uses, and it's it's figuring out the value add, if you will, of the advisor of interpreting the data that you get back. You know, it's 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 the quality then the delivery to the uh, to the end customer um but it, it's going to be an interesting few years that's for sure uh so um it's it's man plus machine is the is the yes. advantage rather than man yeah, versus well it has machine. to be right now right it has right. to be. i think that's a great point in terms of now i don't think it's going to replace it the human element of going and making sure you in, have in the in the short term in the short term in the short right. term but, but in i the, do in think the hold on term, there's a different I don't know. risk there right i think it's going to be used to evaluate who you're doing business with and whether your advisor is as st you have the strongest advisor giving you the advice right that's how i think that there'll be a lot of a lot more checks and balances that Quite frankly, people don't have today. They don't know. They don't spend the time doing the research. And now this is a shortcut to the research. So that but that's the that's the point, isn't it? How do you choose an advisor today? You choose someone who gives you the best advice. Yeah. If you don't have AI in the equation, then you, you aren't can't going keep up. to be the yeah, best you, you, advisor. You're not gonna be able to keep up, is the bottom line. So it has to be a combination. I think I think another important area is the um 
if you think about, I'm going to just shift, uh, Melissa, if you don't mind, over to, to my neck of the woods in capital markets. So yeah. if you think about how that ecosystem works between the buy side and the sell side, um, there is a is a zero tolerance to error is is how I describe it, because you can't, if you make a mistake kind of in any piece of the value chain on a daily basis, the implications are you going to alter um, the value, let's say, of a product that then gets sold out and it goes through transfer agency, goes to wealth, et cetera, on the buy side. So it's it's got these huge implications. And so the industry has been built up with very thorough um, exception management processes um, to make sure that the data is sort of spot on every single time. And it's it's become an RPA process, I would describe it to this point, that's going to pivot with the help of machine learning and then generative AI into the next into the next uh, uh, generation. So all of those processes start to become highly automated, um, and it just guarantees the integrity of data. It but, knows how to handle error handling, exception management, and it automates the uh, the end to end process. I mean, I I, I I I get it, right? But. Uh, you know, I've also done a lot of work in, um, you know, m- mass affluent wealth management advice delivery. You know, over the years as an experienced designer and as a as a strategist, and I can tell you, probably eighty percent of the you know, in terms of the mass affluent market, it's uh, you know, product of the month rather than yeah. being a real advisory process where Please. I'm drilling down Please. to your needs and fitting Please. a financial services product exactly to your to your needs, which is where this this AI in terms of personalization is, I think, you know, got got massive potential. And that means that if you are an advisor, if you're a BFA or a, you know, um, you know, working for a likes of, you know, UBS Credit Suisse or, you know, <coughs> these guys. You have to lift your game now, you know, because you are going to be competing against um, a, an algorithm that will be That's able right. to instantly right. personalize results for you. Yeah. So I do so, think there's a threat there. Think back to Reg BI, right? This puts an entirely different spin on best interest. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. Uh, after the break, we're going to continue with diving into uh, DeFi and ESG and the implications uh, that climate change brings for the financial services space. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. We are with uh, Melissa Cullen and Tony Warren from FIS talking about the Global Innovation Report from from FIS. And uh, we're going to dive into DeFi. So uh, when we talk about this decentralized uh, finance market, 
Obviously, there's been some pretty big developments this year with the failure of uh, FTX and San Bankman-Fried, or um, bankrupt fraud, as he's now known. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, in in terms of this, we've seen as as we were talking during the break, Tony, you were mentioning that there'd been a contraction from essentially this asset pool of three trillion dollars of crypto and alternative assets in this space, including NFTs and so forth, and that's shrunk down to about a third of its size. Yeah. Right now, keeping in mind that you know those none of those asset classes really existed, uh, you know, tw- 12, 13 years ago either. Um, you know, Bitcoin sort of being um, the first, if you like, back in two thousand eight. But um, you know, th- there there is an entire industry that has emerged around managing crypto. And it's not just the exchanges. We have a whole lot of DeFi companies working on, you know, alternative asset portfolio management and expertise there. You've got the metaverse uh, now coming along where you're going to presumably have a whole bunch of uh, need to uh, quantify digital assets in that realm. Um, But, and, you know, of course, blockchain. Uh, But, you know, just give us some of the highlights in terms of where these alternative uh, DeFi systems are going now. Yes, so I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, the FTX collapse, and I'd, I'd actually combine that, Brett, with with the condition that we're currently in and we've been in for the last twelve months. So, kind of post COVID, coming out of sort of extraordinary circumstance, then going straight into a war, which has then had an economic effect to mature markets. So you've got the FTX collapse, but in conjunction. With rising interest rates and then a flight, at these sort of uncertain times, you then get a, a flight to certain assets anyway. So of course that's put additional pressure uh, onto the market. Now, having said that, on our uh, our survey, eighty eight percent of institutional respondents and seventy five percent of retail investors still believe that digital assets will see mainstream adoption. Um, within this decade, so the it, it's kind of the trains left the station. It um it kind of got a hit a little bit by the buffers, but but I think the underlying technology is still there. So some of the challenges is obviously participation and then regulation in a highly regulated industry. But they are you know you can see some business cases starting to emerge, and I think over the next five years uh, or so we'll see um we'll we'll pivot from a from a situation of this technology particularly you know the blockchains and the whole decentralized finance um moving from looking for a, you know technology looking for a problem to solve to actually this becoming meaningful and helping to transform certain sectors of the industry so i think there are some interesting cases already if you look at the private equity market it's been a very popular um, growing industry over the last decade or so um, with a lot more um, participants in there. But it's still really only subject to a, a small pool of, of the investment community uh, working in the illiquid in the private markets uh, with the, the GP and the LP uh, investment community. So there is a chance here that you could look at a tokenization uh, of the private equity market. So uh, you effectively start to bring in a form of unitization to that industry. And now the result of that could be twofold. One, 
for the LP, the current investment community, that would give them the ability to sort of buy, sell more fluidly. You know, you could find a buyer for your tokens if you wanted to come out um, out of a an arrangement uh, before uh, the GP um, moves the fund on. Um, or uh, it could really open up the doors to the adjacency. So if you think about how the world has shifted into uh, DC pension funds, so everybody is looking at uh, their own savings now for their own retirement, et cetera. So it's moved away from DB, it's moved away from government. Um, more asset classes coming available, more long-term um, structures. You could be opening up to a whole new market for that private equity in the illiquid right. world. So that e- alone, even the, even the yeah. Silicon Valley Bank um, collapse yeah. really yeah. identified this problem that the banking industry has with you know simply trying to leverage deposits for uh, you know and yeah you know, what do you have to do to provide return on deposits even if it's at lower interest that's right. rates um, no, that's right you know that's right and, and let's not forget um, you know you have fifty uh, percent of the world's commodities trade is energy. And yep. we're undergoing the greatest revolution in energy management right. that you know humans right. have seen in the last you know two hundred years. Um, and so, what happens to the commodities market around energy futures? You know, well, when, think, yeah, 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 no, 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 no. You're right, I, and I think I think commodity is another area that that could start. You know, you might start to see uh, um, uh, decentralized finance playing a role. I mean, already, I know we're going to talk about ESG in a minute, but already carbon credits, that's a classic. It's a new, fairly new esoteric uh, asset class. And it really is on that DeFi marketplace. And so ultimately, you know, you might think about uh, asset management, the asset management community using traded carbon credits to augment and raise the profile of their portfolio from from an ESG standpoint. and uh, and I know we, we spoke about generative AI before as well, but I think again to your point on commodities, there's a role to play there because I think um, as you combine all of this stuff and this data and and um, and next generational um, exchanges, I think um, generative AI is going to start to be used to look at that whole supply chain management. So from a corporate perspective, to actually see behind the scenes. So although at face value, I'm using XYZ um, uh, materials for for, for whatever I'm doing, the commodities that are driving that in the background could become very volatile, which is really going to impact, at the end of the day, the product that I produce from my corporation. Uh, Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. In in fact... um... You know, if you you think about how we're going to value things in this sort of emerging world, you know, and this sort of leads into climate, the climate ESG discussion, it is um, we are already starting to see a a shift away from corporations, just pure profitability as a measure, to now asking whether corporations are doing a good thing. 
you know, and whether yeah. their activities yeah. are uh, healthy for the community around them. And I think this is a, um, I think this is a philosophical paradigm shift that's going Absolutely. to occur. I think with climate change and AI, um, you know, those two things coming together, AI is going to enable, um, you know, massive, um, uh, you know, a, a, a massive sort of restructuring of the whole intermediaries play mm-hmm. in terms of creation of value. And it'll be very, very difficult for, to compete with AI if you, you don't already have it, have that in the capability, but at Absolutely. the same, so, so the traditional market function gets challenged, but on the, on the same side of this, we're going to be saying, well, hang on a second. You know, the 20th century produced all of these companies that were just profit at all costs. That's right. And what did it get us? It got us climate change. It got us 10 million right. people a year dying from air That's pollution, right. et cetera, right. right? So th- I think there's a really interesting opportunity here where um, when you're trying to create value in this new system, it is off. Uh, very alternative forms of behavior and and we're going to be emphasizing things that are, are beyond just purely you know you make profit for the market i, I right. think corporations are going to have to do good you know yeah, that's right. it goes to oh. perception right perception of the value um we're seeing it already uh in kind of how corporations are measured but what i am seeing more of now is also that trickling into who we do business with on a personal front and right, right. how it will that's affect right. right our portfolios from that's- a personal holding perspective I cannot wait until we get to a point where risk tolerance, right, asks questions like, are you willing to trade off a 2% increase for a more balanced or, you know, energy forward portfolio? So that's the kind of Well, you've seen HSBC and Barclays getting, you know, having the naked protesters at the front of their uh, offices (laughs) because um, because of, you know, their um, fossil fuel positions. You saw standard Chartered get into a lot of trouble yep. for their greenwashing when they had this yeah, big ESG right. announcement, and then it came out that they'd invested you know, four hundred right. million in a coal plant in Australia, whatever. That's whatever. Right. So, um, you know, how do we get real? You know, moving into the whole well, ESG thing, you know. I, I, I think. I mean, this is such a wide subject, <laughs> and actually, we're doing loads. We're doing loads of it. I think this is the inflection year for ESG. My in my own opinion. Melissa hit a very important point in that um, it's almost like starting to invest with a conscience and now combine that with the demographic shift, which I was talking to earlier. Very true. That your your wealth in your old age is no longer going to be the responsibility of the company you work for or the government Mm -hmm. in the country you live. It's going to be your own responsibility and um, the DC fund. It's your pot. So you can make the investment decisions. And as people are becoming more and more aware, this does absolutely become an influencer. But the industry itself is still relatively opaque. And that, again, it goes to to the lack of technology at this point and, and really getting your arms around how to synthesize and control the data. So this is where I'd like to paint the future picture. Right now, if you if you have a savings product or your retirement scheme, typically the ESG balance is occurring on the wealth platform. So it's wholesale where you're buying into a fund which has got an ESG badged credential. So its strategy in itself is a green fund or a sustainability fund. And then that's what's being used to then 
balance your traditional funds, which could be the S and P five hundred tracking fund, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know you build your 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 balanced portfolio strategy. I think the industry, because the the uh, the incumbent, if you will, asset managers still need to protect their assets, and they may not be that bad. It's just that it's opaque. So the industry needs to give transparency into every portfolio, whether it's a USIT or it's right. a, um, a 40 Act fund, etc. And the underlying companies need to be scored. So you've got to get consensus with firms like FactSet, Sustainalytics, etc., to come up with credible scoring, which then you can create an aggregate for any portfolio, which can say it could be attached to the NAV. And then that flows through the TA to the wealth platforms. And now you can actually make better informed decisions. So Tony loves using algorithms, I mean, a- acronyms. So many acronyms. So I'm here so I can break you it You're the translator, the Tony translator. <laughs> no, um, so, uh, I mean, are you talking about, uh, um, I mean, I could see us having, from an investment perspective, particularly when we start talking about market performance, um, we're already talking about firms whether they're going to be carbon neutral. Yes. So imagine the stock market showing: here's your share price, here's yes. your carbon neutral score. That's right. Absolutely. Here is your community, you know, absolutely, um, you absolutely. know, wellness score. Um, yeah. You know, so that you know the way we assess the performance of a corporation is is no longer just going to be limited mm-hmm. to their financial and, performance. And, and, and this, being able this to has... have, go ahead, Tony. No, so all I was going to say: this has massive ramifications because then. You need regulation to ensure right. people are being honest. So you don't get the greenwashing. You don't get right. the other kind of pretending, if you will, of who you are. And that, Brett, is where generative AI is going to then kick in uh-huh. to apply yep. it to the corporations themselves. So it can check what are you doing? And then how can you increase? What practices do you need to be performing as a company to raise your to raise your ESG score. And yeah. the final point I'll make: climate risk is is a, you know it, ESG is and remember I'll, I'll undo the acronym. It's environment, social, and government. So it's not just sustainability, but um, the climate piece also has a hugely sort of commercial point of view as well because we know that there is climate change, and so climate risk to a company's assets and their removable property is going to become a very important assessment for every corporation around the world as you're valuing the worth, the net worth of, of, of a company itself or a corporation. I think not only that, right, the fact that it, it we talk about ESG as a singular thing often and a singular yeah. score. And Brett, you hit on it. It's not going to be just about climate. Right. It's not going to be. And right. we have to start breaking that down That's because right. different, whether it's investors or consumers, are going to want to weight different areas, right? right? So, hey, I want to make sure that I'm investing in companies or buying from companies with diverse management versus right. ones right. that are carbon neutral. Right, right. So I think that's where, right, the richer the data can get and the less basic of the scores, we're off to a great start, but there's so much more that needs to be done there. By exposing the data, confirming the data, right, that it's not just company-driven to make those decisions. Uh, You know, I mean, right now, ESG within corporations, um, you know, particularly in the financial services space, it seems to me it's more of a PR 
thing than it is actually a foundational uh, um, I, thing. But is that changing? Tony? Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that, Brett. All right. I mean, by by 2025, a third of the world's assets, so that's $53 trillion, are going to be in ESG-rated companies. Ah, so okay. it's it's really moving the needle, and that's my. Point. So it is changing, yeah. It is changing, and I think and I think regulation is going to swing in behind it as well to make sure, to your point, that it's not just lipstick. You know that, that this is very real, and so if you earn that score, you earn that badge, you are actually driving change throughout society. A couple of years ago, um, you you know you saw it plastered all over the the mainstream media about the. Um, the cost of Bitcoin mining in energy terms. And yet, if we actually look at the financial services industry today, it's a considerably larger energy footprint than um, Bitcoin mining is. Um, And so there's going to be pressure, you know, as we build in generative AI and we've got more compute power required, embedded finance, more compute power required, you know. Um, So we are going to have to sort of take a, a... a, a much different view to sort of the platform approach just on I, energy management, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're right. I mean, I think I think um, again. I mean, there's a whole other subject about cloud computing and the direction that will go. Um, but just for argument's sake, obviously you get you've got private cloud, you've got public cloud uh, right now, and of course the public cloud of split between uh, um, AWS and um, Microsoft Azure and Google, um, they they are, to be fair, I think this is the top of their agenda as well. So if you think about consolidation of data processing on a worldwide basis, I know they are looking at strategies where you know they can create cost more and more cost-effective data centers and and they have their own um, sustainability and and carbon neutral targets that they're working towards. Fair enough. Um, I mean, as a as a firm that obviously um, supports a, a major portion of the U.S. Uh, you know infrastructure for financial services from a um, computing perspective, mm-hmm. how is this changing the design of? Your core systems, the view of on-prem versus cloud, and and so forth. You know, to to get more efficient, you know, environmentally friendly computing and platforms. Yeah, yeah, I'd say we're wearing the same badge, uh, Brett. So, yeah. so we have we have carbon neutral targets. Um, we we take it very seriously um, around sustainability, and you know, we do have an ESG score, <laughs> which we which we uh, work hard at to achieve across across all of the three sections. Um, but from a product design point of view, you're right. Um, so we look at how we can be the most productive. So, you know, where it makes sense to be multi-tenant. So you're using less CPU, you're losing, using less churn um, to support the uh, the outcomes that we need. But sorry, Melissa, you go as well. No, that's exactly where I was going, right? That it's finally become part of the design process up front. Yeah. It's not just deploy and now it's, you know, whoever's hosting the software's job to figure out how to maximize it. Um, so it's a big part of all of our next gen um, design sessions, whether that's for the retirement course, banking course. Um, so I'm highly encouraged and looking forward to start uh, reporting and measuring it. 
Yeah. Now, um, Tony, you talked about um, robotic process automation. Um, you know, we've talked about supply chain automation. Um, obviously, a, a lot of the systems we use today in terms of value exchange, you're going to see a high level of automation over the next 20 years. Um, yeah. We're going to be tokenizing that. We have smart contracts we're going to need to, to implement that. Um, so you could see if we extend this out and extrapolate in, in you know, 20 or 30 years, a, a, a very big part of sort of the global market in terms of trade could be machine-to-machine interactions rather than being handled by markets as, as we do today, you know, markets as an AI function. So how does that change the, the way we value markets in the ecosystem? If markets are just algorithms, then... Um, yeah, it's, know, a good, it's, it's a good point. I mean, <laughs> I, I suppose I don't, I don't have a crystal ball on that. I think I think you can make some pretty firm analysis. If you go back, I mean, there was this thing right called Big Bang. Do you remember this Big Bang? It was back in 1987. Before then, the stock sure. exchange was open outcry. It was pieces of paper. You were running down to a bank. You had to fill out a transfer document. You stamped it. So, how many? You know, th- that's okay. That's 30, th- 30, 33, th- 36 years ago. Um, so maybe it's a little more, but the way technology i would say has picked up its pace in the last decade even you know think about that transformation that's occurred over the last couple of decades with the with the financial services ecosystem so another 20 years i think your assumption is is probably quite solid uh, brett that it becomes well, i'm a futurist you know tony yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> i mean you're already seeing it in other industries right you know brett you mentioned the legal industry and now you have these generative ai you know bots negotiating against one another so it is certainly not far off in financial services yeah um, so, you know, in terms of the ESG stuff, we've talked about customers self-selecting, um, you know, players, corporations that they want to work with based on their core set of values. But what other impacts do you think that ESG overall is going to have on the consumer market? Um, we talked about it affecting where they're going to invest. I think it's also about where they're going to buy. Um, and what they're willing to spend and how they associate value, right? So today, it's simply about the use of whatever you're buying, um, you attribute a value to. I do think that that score is going to become more prominent and change the way we value basic goods and services for that matter. Tony, what do you think? No, I completely agree. And I think think, um, as a... You know, that's called it's almost like a value added. I I actually think it will become part of the trading algorithm. So when when you look at portfolio management today and you're choosing where you want to invest, um, I think it's going to look at okay, this one firm they either haven't taken it seriously or they they just don't <laughs> they're not doing anything about it. Um, I think the algorithms will recommend a peer company that. Uh, is yeah. much in a much stronger position and and a, and a similar a product, performance you know? similar yeah. product absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely so and this goes imagine. back to recommendations yeah. right tony that you hit on in the beginning uh, absolutely, so, I absolutely. Mean, it so, is a recommendation yeah and and so that could be a, a a a driver of success at the corporation level because it's going to attract yeah. investments 
Yeah, it's you know, it's such a philosophical change, isn't it? Like, you know, we've been so used to gearing our investment decisions and so forth just purely based on return, you know, That's right. alpha, sharps, beta, you know, exactly. all these ratios, exactly. et cetera, you know, CAGR, it's all about um, economic return. And now you, you're talking about introducing a whole range of other measures that's going to come into whether you're an attractive company to invest. I mean, um, you know, assuming that, AI produces incredible wealth from from its investment. Um, you know, generating returns is ne- not necessarily going to be um, as differentiated as it is yeah. today because it's going to be algorithm but, based. But I think what we'll find though, Brett, is that you over time you'll start to see a correlation between good ESG practice and financial performance anyway, right. because you're going to have. A that better makes workforce, sense. you know, inclusive, diverse workforce. So you'll have longevity, better talent pool. And then ultimately, if you're looking at um, sustainability, you know, you're controlling your energy costs. So therefore, your exposure to fossil fuel energy, uh, as we've obviously seen in the last couple of years. So there's all these other things that can actually, I think, long term will translate into economic outcomes anyway. So, Tony, uh, do, do, I mean, are, are you seeing this posture change at, at the board level? You know, are, are, are board members and executives of of the largest FIs are they getting really serious about this stuff? I I, I think so. I mean, I haven't got any. I don't have any special um, um, insights. Insight, but but I think overall, there's definitely a sense. I mean, I can tell you off. Um, absolutely, we have, <laughs> we have we have diversity, inclusivity. Uh, targets and as I said, you know we've got carbon neutral targets. We we take it yeah. extremely seriously, and I think most modern large corporations do. Would be my yeah. you know it's funny. I mean, I just tweeted out the other day because SpaceX, uh, you know, when they had Crew Five return from the the space station, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they had an all female crew handling right. the return of of uh, you know the SpaceX uh, yeah. Dragon module, and I made a comment about how it really was quite positive, and then I got piled on by all of these you know misogynistic uh, it's <laughs> not good they're still yeah, about you know uh, you know it's not very diverse having an all-woman crew and all that sort of stuff and i'm like come on haven't we got past this but you know there's still work to be done. missing the point right? yeah correct um, yeah. and i will say on that one it's you know i look forward to the day when we don't have to call it out because it's i not know that's right no, more that's of right. The norm, but yeah, I, 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 it, it has to be a cultural shift. You're yeah. right, you know. Yeah. So, um, where can we get a copy of this report? It sounds really interesting. I do have the URL here. It's www.fisglobal.com slash global dash innovation dash report. It's pretty easy, actually. That's a great plug. Thank you. Right on the website. Um, so it's one of the featured things. And there's a lot of great data that we didn't have time to touch on. So definitely check it out. How do we uh, follow you guys individually? How can you know where can people find out more about you or follow your musings on the topic? We, I am uh, off Twitter these days, but LinkedIn is where LinkedIn. I'm doing most of that. Yeah, okay. like like likewise, I I post on to LinkedIn uh, with all of the latest and greatest. Fantastic. Well, we'll uh, we'll include uh, links to your profiles as well as part Thank of the you. show, but. Uh, Tony Warren, Melissa Cullen, thank you for joining us on Breaking Banks. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. Great stuff. Cheers.
That's it, guys, for Breaking Banks this week. Uh, some really interesting topics, AI, ESG, all very uh, foundational and, and, and formative uh, stuff for what comes next. If you like the show today, uh, please tweet it tweet it out. Um, you know, If you're still on Twitter, if you're on LinkedIn, post about it, tell your friends. All of that helps us get some traction. And um, feel free to leave us a review. Um, you know, That's also important uh, because it helps people find the content. And if there's guests you'd like to see on the show, uh, let us know as well. Our thanks go out to uh, the team that produces uh, Breaking Banks every week, uh, Kevin Hershen, Lisbeth Severance, uh, um, and the uh, social media team, and Tony Carlo and, and Sylvie, and, of course, my, uh, my co-hosts, uh, JP and Jason. We'll be back with another Breaking Banks next week. Until then, stay well. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severance, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.